The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Isaiah 1, 2-9. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have re- rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole to the foot, even from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, and your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. As the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us with a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise your Praise your you, you know how sometimes you look at children and you say, man, they're a spitting image of their parents, right? Addie sounds just like her mama. I was, I was like, wow, you know that's your daughter. She talked like you. Let us pray before the Lord. God, we love you and we bless you for you are our God and we're your people. And we're so thankful because we know that there is none like you throughout the heavens and the earth. And I pray, Jesus, that we are, uh, our hearts are tuned to what you are doing in our lives, in the life of this church. And I pray that we hear it through your word. Uh, Use me now, Lord Jesus, to speak directly to your people. Hide beneath your cross. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer. All God's people say together. Amen. 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 Uh, As you know, we have been going, we have just started a series. This series started last week uh, and Richard gave an overview. Yahweh saves. Say Yahweh saves. Not much for you to remember, but what you ought to know is, is that we are trusting that the Lord will help us to see how in the midst of one's judgment, he still proclaims a a vision for salvation. In the midst of judgment, Israel still has hope for salvation. Uh, That's almost to say that when you think about judgment and destruction coming along people sometimes it doesn't hit us as Americans as we should and I think and we talked about this I think it doesn't hit us as it should because we have too much right I think that we are individuals who are consistently putting our hands in the proverbial cookie jar and we're waiting for someone to stop us but yet because of our gluttony we continue to eat. And I think that this is happening when, with Israel in the context of where uh, Isaiah is speaking to them directly, prophetically, in some sense to warn them of the wrath of God. They think they can get away with their sin and rebellion. 
And so as we look at our passage this, this morning, I want us to keep in mind that Yahweh saves, and for us, that sounds good. But it also should, help, should remind us that his judgment is imminent. He's not saving us for no reason. He's saving us from his wrath and his judgment that's to come. So the reason I say that is because I think casual and cultural Christianity is eating us alive. I think casual and cultural Christianity is eating us alive, and I think it's eating us alive in the form of rebellion and in the form of pleasure-seeking. Some people would say uh, we are a hedonistic culture. We seek pleasure. We are self-indulgent. We want more. We don't feel as if we ever have enough. Remember when you, you go and you, you eat the McDonald's fries and you feel like you need to eat more? You eat that bag of chips and you feel like you need to eat more? The empty calories of our spiritual life causes us to feel like we want more. And that when we think about this, we have to see it and the aspect in which rebellion expresses a lack of trust and desire for God. A lack of trust in him and a lack of trust and a lack of desire for him. And when we recognize God, when we recognize God, it's not the same as knowing God. Y'all heard me say this before, that knowing Christ or knowing God means that we know self and we can know others. But yet, if we do not know God first, we can't know ourselves, nor can we have intimate relationship that demonstrate that we know others. Knowing is not merely about facts, is the point. Knowing is not how many books of the Bible that you are able to remember. Knowing God is not about understanding abstract theological con concepts. Knowing God is not simply about how much you are being discipled or how many disciple leaders you find in your life. Knowing God is not you simply going to a community group, although you should be a part of one, but it's not simply about being in a community group, nor is knowing God simply about how much you are attending church and how much you are doing in church. That's not knowing God. Many of us recognize him or may intellectually know him, but we don't know him. What do I mean by that? Many of y'all went to go see LeBron James last night. Uh, I couldn't find a ticket. I was struggling. I wanted to see my brother as he was out there. See, he needed me. I was praying for him through the television, but the Grizzlies beat up on him. And I know some of y'all mad, like, oh, they're a Grizzly fan. Okay, okay. Um, but how many of you know the stats of LeBron James? The stats of John Morant. You know the stats of Michael Jordan. You know the stats of Senior Messi. You know the stats of the next best baseball player. You know the stats, or you even know things about people. But if LeBron, Michael Jordan, Senior Messi, if any of the people that you know would walk in here, they wouldn't know you. Isn't it interesting that Israel is a people, a nation called by God, but yet they don't know God? He's the same God that's been able to provide manna out of nowhere. He was the God that delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. 
He was the God that was able to, to speak directly to Moses in order to lead the people. He was a God that parted a Red Sea, a God that put the ten plagues, a God that spoke to Jacob, a God that spoke to Abraham, a God that was able to confound the minds and the tongues of individuals on the Tower of Babel. This is the God, but yet they were able to read the Torah. They were able to read some of the things about God, and all tradition even told them about this God, but yet it was, it's funny that their rebellion demonstrated that they did not know God. Even in this time, it was in uh, the book of Kings where Hezekiah, the king who was reigning as, uh, uh, during, one of, during Isaiah's prophecy, he was seeing the people of God sacrificing their children before idols and giving themselves over to more gods. We would see if somebody were to do that today, we would say, oh, they don't know God. But see, this is what I think that we do. I think we do the cultural and the casual Christianity thing. We struggle in our lives and yet we cause conflict with one another, but yet we don't know God. Because we don't desire to reconcile, we don't desire to love. We try to make sure that we hide our 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 spiritual lives through our children. Look how well they're doing. But we don't know God. We're just trying to make it seem like our children do. We find ourselves going on mission, and yet we find ourselves being a part of several different organizations, parachurch organizations, serving on boards and doing etc. But yet, and we're doing so many different things and even giving our money to things. But we don't know God. We're just doing good deeds. Some of our children would say and leave this place that I know God. But yet they don't have good examples of God. They don't know God. You're like, Mike, this is difficult. I think the picture that we see of the children of Israel is hard to read. But here's what I want you to understand. If it had not been for the God's grace, if it had not been for God's grace, all of us would die in our foolishness. So the question is not, nor am I saying that we need to do more. What I'm saying is we need to know the God we're serving. We can't continue to allow ourselves to be given to cultural and casual Christianity. That is influenced by politics, influenced by societal norms, influenced by cultural norms, doing things culturally, but our hearts are never transformed. That is key for us as people. So that's that's my that's what I want you to remember. And I'm actually expound on that thought itself, on that premise that if it had not been for the grace of God, we would have died in the pool of our foolishness. You would have died in the pool of your foolishness, your foolish efforts to fix things, because that's what we try to do. Look at uh, when we look at verses two through four, essentially, you see the people of God rebelling. Brene Brown, who I have heard and learned through many of you guys and even my wife, she's a popular author on, on shame researching. And she says this, she was saying she talked about coming back to the church and after years away from the church, there was a moment about this whole Jesus thing that stood out for her. 
Finally, it clicked. It, it, it came to, to, for her to understand. She said this, that people would want to love. They want to love. They want love to be a unicorn and a rainbow. So then you send Jesus and people say, oh, my God, love is hard. Love is a sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. It was Leonard Cohen who sings this, that love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. Love isn't hearts and bows. It's not Cupid. Love is not the notebook. And many of y'all who like the photograph and don't like the photograph, I'm adding this. It's not the photograph. I haven't seen it yet, so don't. But it is very controversial. Love is controversial. In order for us to understand forgiveness, it, it, that forgiveness really can happen and that something has to die, love is troubling. Do you understand that? And whether it's according to your expectations or the person's expectations or your idea about who you are, that is not simply love. There has to be death for forgiveness to happen. And in all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, I want you to hear this. There is not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. That if love is easy and forgiveness is easy, there is not enough blood from the cross on the floor that speaks to that. And he also says this, that all of a sudden, it becomes clear why Christians take forgiveness to heart. But also it is clear why Christians can take forgiveness for granted. The blood on the floor is Christ's, is Christ's own blood. And this connects to our passage this morning. Because knowing God has to be authentic. An authentic covenant relationship with the people of Israel is demonstrated to us. And what we learn from them is that their father loves them and is faithful to them. But their covenant infidelity demonstrated their rebellion and demonstrated their lack of understanding of a God that loves them. Notice in verse 2, God says that he is trying to establish his voice through, the people of, through Isaiah to the people of Israel. Hear, O earth. I mean, O heaven. Give ear or listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Many of y'all know what it means to try to get your children's attention. And when you know you're trying to get your child's attention, what happens is you tell them to look at me. Listen to me because daddy is speaking. I'm struggling with that right now. Because my son, for some reason, when I say something, he wants to challenge it. Uh, but the thing is... I'm trying to help him see that I am the authority without trying to punish him. But get this, God is just trying to speak to them, but he describes how he's raised them. Children, have I reared and brought up? Children, have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's what I want you to underline. That the children and the people of Israel have rebelled against him, saying that these wayward children have forgotten how he's raised them. 
forgotten what he's done for them, forgotten how he has been able to be the God and the father that's led them, led them through trouble and led them through issues and led them through those dark times. They have forgotten how he's done this and they've gone wayward. I remember when my mother said that uh, I was the mo- I was the person that brought you into this world and I will be the person that take you out of this world. Amen for any parent that's ever said that. It may not be theologically and ethically correct, but it gets the point. So when you think about this, it's actually even more dreadful for those that are a part of the children that are that are part of the children of Israel and committing infidelity because Deuteronomy 21:18 actually highlights this metaphor of a child. It's not a metaphor for them. Children in Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 20, 21, 18 through 21, you could bring your child to the elders, and if they were disobedient and unholy, would be stoned. Stoned to death. So what God is using this wisdom literature to say that your disobedience, your rebellion is not simply something that you're doing to oneself, but you're rebelling against God and God alone. Remember when David sinned, you see David's whole household is affected by the sin of his father, of their father. And when he sins, who does he say he sins against? God and God alone. When we rebel, it's it's this same notion that we ought to understand that punishment against God and punishment of disobedience equals death and wrath. And the analogy that he even uses, this knowing, this knowing, remember, knowing God means knowing self and means knowing others. He even says an ox. He boils it all the way down to an ox who's chained and submitted to his master. He knows his master. Look at verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib where he can be fed and where he's provided for. But think, look at what he says. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. If this is not more clear for us to understand that what it means to be a part of church, what it means to be a part of a body, what it means to be a part of knowing God means that we are not individuals that are trying to feel what it knows, feel, feel, feel about what it knows, what it means to know God. And the reason I say feel is because my professor, I remember in seminary, had instructed us not to ever write, I feel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I want you to write about what you think and what you know. Many of us, our prayers about how we feel. Our prayers are emotional in their only ways that we feel. Our prayers and the way that we engage church and God is only about the way we feel. But isn't it funny that it's different from that God doesn't go about judging us by his feelings. God doesn't care simply, and see, this is not going to be an amen sermon. I already, I prepared my heart when I was prepping. I, I just knew. I was like, I'm not going to give many amens. Nobody going to be like, go ahead and preach. But no, y'all not going to help me. Okay? I understand that. So I, I, I feel okay. But here's what, here's what I want you to know. 
that in verse 3, as he tries to show this interconnectedness of what? Knowing God, knowing self, and knowing others. What this interconnectedness shows us that creatures know some of the basic aspects of life. But yet we, as the people of God, Israel, as the people of God, don't know or remember and recall the very God that they serve. Because there were visible ways in which God demonstrated that he was real. So the rebellion, even it amplifies itself because now it says, why does God continue to love a disobedient people? We have to ask ourselves that question. Why does God continue to love you? It's very difficult because when you look at verse four, Israel was referred to as a sinful nation, but when you think about how God has already, what God has declared them, he's declared them his children and his people. A holy nation, a royal priesthood. And he describes not only are they a sinful nature, but they are offspring being born out of, as evildoers. They are burdened with iniquity, weighed down by it. And they willingly give themselves over to corruption. Willingly give themselves over to corruption. When we see this, it is a picture that the distance between God and man or God and Israel is far more apparent in the text than we realize. Israel despises God. And they are totally alienated from God. I don't think that this can be more. I don't think I can illustrate this more by seeing broken marriages and broken families. It is so hard to see marriages that are broken because of miscommunication, misinterpretation, or the lack of forgiveness. It is difficult to see families torn apart because children don't want to listen to their parents and they want to go their own way. It's hard to see children give themselves over willingly to corruption, willingly to sin. It's hard. Make it more modern. To see in our own communities, children raising children, families where we oftentimes put so much on a single mother, but it, to know how hard it is to raise a child by yourself. And you raise them in the church and they go their own way. I've been around families who we would all say are well put together. Their child was baptized. Their child professed faith. They went to college and they got addicted to Xanax. They became addicted to painkillers. He or she had given their bodies over to other individuals. And their parents did everything to put them into recovery programs. They took them out of college. They tried to mask everything. But see, what we, he, what we see here is that you can't mask rebellion. You can't mask this sin and destruction. It's very apparent. And so when you think about a society that encourages unforgiveness and makes it look weak, when you think about a society that makes you look weak for trying to encourage others to do what's right ethically 
When you look at a society that despises unity, it is a society that despises the power of grace. If it had not been for the grace of God, we would all die in our foolishness. The power of grace in God's providential care is demonstrated to the people of Israel. It should not be overlooked, but oftentimes it is. And Moses said it. In fact, we would say Moses predicted or prophesied this. Moses said that the people of God will rebel. The people will break the very vow that they made. They will break the vow to God who provided for them, who loved them, the very one who has been faithful to them, the one that they have looked to other gods, the moon god, the god of the stars, every other thing on earth, the god of fertility. They worship all of these different other gods. You're saying they don't have nothing to do with me. Yes, it does. You worship the god of your relationships. The God of if he going to make me better or she going to make me better. You worship the God of your career. You worship the God of everything is going to be all right. You worship the God of I don't want any trouble. You worship the God of if I can just have more money in my bank account. You worship the God of I don't want pain. All of these different gods attribute to our casual and cultural Christianity. Oh, and did I mention, we worship the God of politics. The God that says that the person that will be in office will be the person that makes this world better. Y'all heard me say this before. I don't need a policy in order for me to love people. We don't need a president or a politician to help us be the church. What we need to do is be a church that knows God. So when you look at verse 4, you see this. They have forsaken the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Verse 5. Why will you still be stuck? Why will you continue to rebel? Continue to rebel. Be persistent in rebelling. In fact, you can say it this way. Why seeking? Why, why seeing that you have been beaten again, do you rebel again? Why do you put yourself in that predicament? When you're by yourself and you're feeling lonely and then you flip open your laptop or you open your phone, why do you beat yourself up? Because of what you view on there. When you, when you continuously break up with that girlfriend and that boyfriend, but then you go back. Why do you continue to go back to them and you beat yourself up? Israel is beating themselves time and time again because of their rebellious acts. You see this when he says that the sickness that they are feeling from their head and the faintness from their heart, from the sole of the foot, of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And the bruises and sores and the raw wounds, they are all pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. 
It's not really put together. It's not really intact. Subjecting oneself to much pain. I believe, as this is talking directly to Christians, if, you, if you're a non-believer, I, don't, I, don't, I, I think this is talking to Christians. Because non-believers, people that do not believe in Jesus, you're going to do what, what non-believing people do. But when you are a believer, you need to do what the righteous is declared to do. That, may, that should be more clear and apparent because when you think about the kings at this time, these individuals were not uh, fools. They were politically economically and militarily sound. They were individuals who knew what it meant to have well-secured, the well-being of national security. They were individuals who, as scholars would say, that had worldly wisdom, but yet they were individuals who could not understand the God that provided for them. There was no military that de- delivered them from Egypt. There was no military that allowed, that fed them. There was no military that destroyed and defeated their enemies. It was only God. Why is this, why is this more, why should this be more apparent and clear? Because their helplessness and hopelessness is the way in which they forsake God. I can see that you may not understand how this applies to us culturally. You look at the news every single day. You look at the view you watch CNN, CNNBC, you watch Fox News, you watch uh, 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 um, all of the other shows. I forget them all the time. And you get all of your information from that. Some of y'all are saying, well, I don't watch TV. <laughs> I thought about you. <laughs> you don't watch TV, but yet you're still subjected to society's influence and impact on your life. You're still trained and discipled by society. And yet, that is the very thing that will lead you to forsake God. You don't believe me? Read Genesis 3. God speaking directly to his people in Genesis 1 saying, uh, Genesis 2 saying, don't eat from a particular tree. And what happens? Adam and Eve go about it their own way. They wanted to be like God. And when you think about that level of rebellion, their likeness to God was the very defeat of their lives. But it was also the very plague of our lives. Because all of us struggle with trying to be like God, not understanding that it is direct rebellion to God. Also missing that God has already created us in his image and his likeness. We can take that. And know that not only that, that the hope and the reason that I hinged a lot of this on, the, on that very point of if it hadn't been for the grace of God was, was verse 9. Then in the daughter of Zion, I mean, uh, verse, let me start at verse 8. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not led us. A few left, not left us a few survivors. Say amen for a few survivors. We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Where when you remember that story, God said that there was no one righteous amongst the people. 
God left righteous people so that his remnant may be there in order to be a picture of his grace and his mercy. He just described in verse 8 the daughter of Zion being left like a booth in a vineyard as one that's weak and vulnerable. A vulnerable way in which you see an outward expression of their sinfulness, but then an internal way in which you see an internal expression of their weakness. But you see God's sovereign strength come through in verse 9. And he's saying, God is saying, that I left a people who will actually declare my goodness, who will actually declare what is righteous, who is actually, who is actually ones that will live for me and not fall into rebellion. I left those people. Why did he leave those peoples, beloved? Because there is one to come. He left a remnant to point to the one who will redeem all things. And some of us are so casual in our Christianity, we don't want to be saved from this life. We don't want things to change because it's so good for us right now. We, we, we don't want a better new heavens or a new earth. We don't want a new earth, heavens and a new earth. We just want our best life or our better life now. But if we were to understand that we are individuals stuck in sin and we are ones that are continuously being shaped and sanctified by our Lord Jesus Christ, then we should be individuals that are determined to live for God as a people and not rebel against God's work. How do I think we're rebelling today? I think we're rebelling today by the way that we allow ourselves to be divided. That's how I think we're rebelling today. I don't think that we're rebelling. In, I, well, we may be rebelling in other ways, but I'm specifically talking about a church that we don't come together simply to try to be in a place together. And we don't talk about being cross-ethnic and cross. We don't talk about trying to blend those lines simply because we think it's fancy or strategy. We don't think that. We believe that this is a spiritual forming of our lives and that the aspect of our division and disunity is a direct judgment on the people of God. If you don't believe me, then you can see a biblical understanding that when the people of God are scattered, the people of God are weak. If we are scattered people in our minds and in our hearts, we are weak people. Oh, my goodness, but if we're founded upon the rock for which we should all stand, then we are people that is founded upon a God who will come and restore all things. I know you're waiting for him to fix your broken household. I know you're waiting on him to fix your spouse. I know you're waiting on him to fix your children. I know you're waiting on him to fix things. But remember that God's grace is so powerful that it may not have changed now, but there is one day where all things will change and all power will be given over to God himself. And he is the one that will rule and reign. This is the picture in which which the Israelites should have and which we should have. Why? Because we shouldn't tremble when we know that we are loved by God. We should only tremble when our fear of God is in honor of God. Once again, I don't want us to know stats. 
I want us to know him. And this table says that we know him. This table says that he is one that knows us. And he had given himself over from, for us. So that. So that. Not for our benefit. Not so we can just have another exercise. But so that we may be transformed every single day. And I know that we're dealing with issues in our culture with sexuality. I know we're dealing with issues in our culture with gender. I know we're dealing with issues in our culture politically. But can I call us together as the family of God not to be divided, not to be divided in our minds and our hearts due to our sin, but to be united upon the faith in which we all share together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much that you're one who continuously shows us how strong you are And Lord, you also help us by your spirit. And your spirit reminds us that we are your children. And so I pray that we we read this text understanding that. That we read this text as ones knowing that we don't want to be distant from God, but we want to be near to you and know you in a more intimate way. Help us come to this table knowing that we need you more and more. Men relationships fix hearts and love people. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say together.